Hey, would you open your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 1? And I know that some of you, that'll be a little harder to find, so while you're turning, I would like Louis C.K. to preach my sermon for me. It's a lot of trust back then, yeah. Those were simpler times, I think. I just feel like we may be going back to that, by the way. But uh, in a way, good, because when I read things like the foundations of capitalism are shattering, I'm like, maybe we need that. Maybe we need some time where we're walking around with a donkey with pots clanging on the sides. You, you think know? that would just bring us back to reality? Yeah, because everything is amazing right now, and nobody's happy. Like, in my lifetime, the changes in the world have been incredible. When I was a kid, we had a rotary phone. We had a phone that you had to stand next to, and you had to dial it. Yes. You don't you realize how primitive, you're making sparks <laughs> in a phone, and you actually would hate people with zeros in their numbers, because it was more, it's right. like, oh, this guy's got two zeros. Screw that guy. Why do I want to? Yeah. And then if, if they called and you weren't home, the phone would just ring lonely by itself. And then if you wanted money, you had to go in the bank for when yes. it was open for like three hours. You had to stand in line, write yourself a check like an idiot. And then when you ran out of money, you'd just go, well, I can't do any more things now. Right. I can't do any more That's things. That's it, yeah. That was it. And even if you had a credit card, They'd, the guy would go, ugh, and he'd bring out this whole shunk, shunk, and he'd write yes. all cruddy. You'd have to call the president to see if you had any money. And it's all true, kids. You phone. had to call the president, yeah. It was ridiculous. Yes. Do you feel that we now, in the 21st century, we take technology for granted? Well, yeah, because now we live in an, in an amazing, amazing world, and it's wasted on the, on the crappiest generation of just spoiled idiots that don't care, because this is what people are like now. They got their phone, and they're like, ugh. It won't. Give it a second. Give it, it's going to space. Can you give it a second to get back from space? Is the speed of light too slow for you? Yeah. Yeah. I was on a, I was on an airplane and there was internet, high speed internet on the airplane. That's yes. the newest thing that I know exists. And I'm sitting on the plane and they go, "Open up your laptop. You can go on the internet." And it's fast. And I'm watching YouTube clips. It's I'm in an airplane. And then it breaks down, and they apologize. The internet's not working. The guy next to me goes, <laughs> Like, how quickly the world owes him something yes. he knew existed only 10 seconds ago. Right. Right. And on planes... <laughs> flying is the worst one, because people come back from flights, and they tell you their story. And it's like a horror story. It's they act like their flight was like a cattle car in the 40s in Germany. That's yeah. how bad they make it sound. Right. They're like, it was the worst day of my life. First of all, we didn't board for 20 minutes. Right. And then we get on the plane, and they made us sit there on the runway for 40 minutes. We had to sit there. Oh, really? What happened next? Did you fly through the air incredibly? <laughs> Like a bird, did you partake in the miracle of human flight, you non-contributing zero that you got to fly? You're flying! It's amazing! Everybody on every plane should just constantly be going, oh my god! Wow! Yes! You're flying. You're, you're sitting in a chair in the sky. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's right. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> you can 
you're dismissed. <laughs> I mean, I was so painful watching it. Uh, I, I, I actually make myself watch that from time to time. I edited it for uh, decorum and uh, time, but, um, but that's me half the time. I'm sitting on an airplane. I'm like, oh, we're sitting here on the ground, like in Haiti. In, in Haiti, okay, we used to have to take boats there. And now I'm in a plane, and I'll gripe about it. So I was, I was watching that this week again, thinking, oh, this is too painful after reading Philippians. <sighs> because it turns out when Paul says that, you know, he talked about you could have much or have little. He talked about this in uh, chapter 4. I've learned the secret of being content, whether I have much or whether I have little. Uh, the secret is that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's just that I don't think I realized, maybe he didn't either, that the greater miracle is to be content when you have much, that that actually seems to be more difficult than when you have little. I don't know if you didn't, so they were just getting wound up in church this morning. In about an hour after David took that video, I assure you, somebody was taking a lap, that somebody was running around being excited that Jesus is Lord and that had risen from the dead. It's almost like, are you kidding me? Did you not know? Why would you not run a lap? Why would you not? But the, when you don't have anything, like if your neighbor doesn't have anything to covet... It's a lot easier. There's a gift in that. Now, that doesn't mean this is a thing about we ought to all feel guilty and become monks and move away. It just means that God trusted you, literally you, trusted you with this great gift. And it's not that wealth is sinful. It's just dangerous. That's all. And we just have to be able to take a step back and to understand. And that's, I'm reading what Paul is writing here. Now, Paul he said, I've had much and I've had little. And he's writing this letter, not from a plain I mean, literally, I mean, it's on a plane coming back from somewhere, Haiti or Guatemala, Morocco. And uh, we were coming back from the, and it was internet. And so I started typing an email and the email didn't go because the internet shut down. I remember how mad I was about it. So that, that, this is me on a mission trip, okay? Paul on a mission trip had been, so this book is written in Rome, AD 61 for history nerds. The Caesar at the time is Caesar Nero, who is a nut job. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So here he is, he has been, he's had a hard, kind of had a hard day. He's actually had a, a hard four years leading up. He's had a hard life, okay, let's just start with that. But the last four years leading up to this, he had been uh, accused falsely of, uh, of a crime in Jerusalem. He's arrested and he's held in Caesarea. Now, he's in Caesarea, he demands his rights, so they say, we'll take you to Rome. Which if I'm Paul, like, how about like Egypt or something like that, like where you know, the other guys are going... Rome is dangerous because Nero is a nut job and they know it by now. So he is in a boat, shackled up. The boat is shipwrecked. He's on an island now. This is a four-year process. This is about two years. He's shipwrecked now on an island. And have you guys seen the dual survival show? You know that's not good, right? Like you're stuck on an island. And then a snake bites him. And not just a snake, a poisonous snake. I'm done at that point. Jesus, take me home. A snake bit. That's like if you just gotten. Has anybody actually curiously uh, been bitten by a snake before? I have been. It is not enjoyable. Was it poisonous? No. But it hurts and it's not pleasant. Right. It is not a pleasant thing. He survives the, the snake bite. That in and of itself is enough. But now he's sitting in a prison cell. He hasn't seen his friends in forever, four years now. And he's going to write a letter home to them. If I were going to write the letter home, I would be like, Hey, could we set up a GoFundMe so that we can get out of here? Can we? Here's what I know about me. Because I was in North Africa a couple months ago, meeting with one of our underground church planter guys, and he's telling me that he is being investigated, 
and that at any moment he's expecting the police to come and to arrest him and to take him away. At which point I'm thinking, like, any moment? Because, like, this is a moment, right? This could be it. And he's like, yeah, I mean, we, if you need to go, I understand. And so I'm looking at my 18-year-old daughter, thinking about trying to explain that to my wife. That's the real persecution, going home without, you know what I'm saying? And so here's what I did. I, send a, 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 I get a text message written up to a friend of mine who's a constitutional lawyer. He does a lot of representation of global interests and helping people getting out of prison around the world. He does great ministry. So I had the, the text message written, ready to go, so that I could hit send the minute if anything happened. Now, of course, obviously, I'm sitting here. Nothing happened. But I didn't write in the text message what Paul said. <laughs> I wrote, you know, hey, I'm in this city uh, with this guy, and if, you know, here's, you know, make sure my wife knows I'm okay, you know, which I wouldn't have known or not, but just tell her I'm okay. And that's what I'm writing. But here's what Paul writes. Chapter 1, verse 12. Snake bit, shipwrecked, persecuted, awaiting execution says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy, Others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. And the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but supposing that they can stir up trouble for me. Kick me while I'm down, is what he's saying. While I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, that Christ is being preached. And because of this, I rejoice. And in case you're wondering, yes, I will continue to rejoice For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. You see what he's saying there? I'm praying, I'm hoping that I'm going to get out of here, but even if I don't, that Christ would be glorified, that he is good, whether he is delivered or whether he is beheaded. For to me, verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if I am going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what will I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body, convinced of this, I know that I will remain. He's like almost like the stream of consciousness. Okay, I've talked myself out of it. I'm staying. I know that I'll stay. And I'll continue with all of you for your, uh, for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. In verse 27, this is the, the to, to me this is like the verse that pulls it all together, what he's saying. This is his thought. But whatever happens, whether I live or die, whatever happens, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whenever, whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved 
and that by God. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And since you were going through the same struggle you saw that I had, and now still have, he says, you still have. He goes on to encourage the brothers and sisters that he's writing to. Let's pray that God will give us wisdom. This is a tough passage. Jesus, would you give us wisdom this morning? I pray for, uh, you know, we sang it, Lord. We sang that your Holy Spirit, that you're welcome here. We sang those words and we prayed them and I pray that we'll mean them. That it won't be my words, but your words, Lord. That I believe you can speak to each and every single one of us here this morning. And we ask for that in, in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, Jeremy uh, pointed out that it, you know, it's been kind of a rough week for some of us. And for those of you that haven't, man, that's awesome. Congratulations. But you know, it's, it's, we live in a Genesis 3 world. And so sometimes stuff goes wrong. Stuff that, stuff that you can't even really blame on Satan. It's just, that's just the Genesis 3 world and stuff just happens. There's things that happen. And the question of us is how will we respond to that? It, when, when the diagnosis didn't come back like you wanted, when the job didn't happen, when the date didn't work out, when wh- whatever, like what is our response? And the verse that really struck me today was verse 27 when he says that whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manny worthy, manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And last week we talked about that the tree planted by the water in Psalm 1, that it went through all the seasons, the dry seasons, the rainy seasons, the snowy seasons, the perfect seasons, and it brought the fruit, the perfect fruit for that season. That that was, the only thing we were to do was just to plant ourselves by the water and allow the fruit, which Galatians 5 tells us is the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit to come out of us. And that fruit here, this is what Paul, when I'm looking at this, the conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is, is Paul's way of saying, I'm just going to act the way that the Holy Spirit is leading me to act. And so it doesn't mean there aren't sad days. It doesn't mean there aren't ecstatic days. It doesn't mean that there isn't pain. It doesn't mean that there sometimes isn't healing. It just means that whatever season you're in that we can trust, planted by the water of the Word and the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will bring us the response. But the word conduct is interesting to me because allowing the Holy Spirit to do what he does requires us a little bit of practice. And the word conduct is a musical term. Right? When, when the worship band played this morning, Jeremy and the band, like he, he will conduct the band ahead of time. What if you try this? Or what if we do this lick instead? And he's conducting the musicians to behave in a manner of a, of a, of a worship band. And so... What I see, what Paul is doing here, intuitively, keeping in mind, he's almost 40 years into his ministry at this point. He is no spring chicken. He has been to this rodeo before. But he is doing some things intuitively that if you were to reverse engineer, you could say, oh, these are the instruments that he is playing. These are the chords that he is playing. You guys have probably seen the, the songs floating around the internet where it's every pop song ever written is the same four chords. Right? And if you know what I'm talking about, go home and Google it. It's absolutely hysterical because it's true. Every one of those songs become hit singles and they impact and make the world. And, and sometimes guys like Pete go in there and actually make them real songs. But for the most part, we, you know, those four songs are the basis, or those four chords are the basis of the song. I'm seeing four things that Paul is doing here, not as a list of things that we should check off every day, but more of as a skill that we should learn 
and then conduct ourselves in this area because every situation is different. So in this situation, we might need a little more cowbell, for instance. <laughs> Most situations you don't, but you don't, if you need it, the Holy Spirit can lead it, but that's, these are these four skills that I'm looking at and, and I want to be better at, and I think that it allows us to have the Holy Spirit response if we play the gospel, so to speak, with these four chords, it'll, it'll adapt to whatever song that we're singing. And the first thing that I see with what Paul is doing is he is literally big picture thinking. It's the mind of Christ. He is thinking about this. In Romans 8, do you remember last week what I shared with you? He says, to reckon, I reckon these things to be uh, nothing compared to the reward. Reckon, if you have a grandpa from the South, what does he say? Well, I reckon you might want to. He's thinking. Reckon about these things. And what Paul is doing is he's not reckoning based upon his thoughts. He's reckoning based upon God's thoughts. He's looking at this big picture. He would say it a different way in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, we have the mind of Christ. That when a, when a circumstance hits us, what would, was Jesus thinking about this? Because Jesus could pull himself back and look at the big picture, the God picture, and think in terms of that. And if you're Paul, he actually says here that all these things are happening that are actually making the gospel go around the world. He's looking at this terrible circumstance and pulling himself back and saying, but you know what? These are actually serving to advance the gospel. He, he is thinking in a way that is big and long. It's the long play for him. And he goes on to say, which is a mind-blowing, because you remember which Caesar I told you was in power? Caesar Nero. Got it. Caesar Nero. Can we have a prize for her? Give her. Yeah. Sarah, give her a bite of your candy bar. I'm sorry. A coffee mug, yeah. He is thinking in terms of the long play on this. And he goes on in chapter 4 at the end of Philippians. He talks about the gospel being presented. And he says, hey, and the brothers and sisters here, they send their greetings, including those in, in Caesar's household. That means that some of Caesar Nero's family had come to Jesus. And to think of the big picture, Paul's dreams had been squashed. He had every intention of going to Rome. From the minute he uh, follows Jesus, he wants to get to Rome. You can see it through Acts chapter 21. And he's about to go there. And they, they tell him, look, whoever goes there, you're going to be tied up. And he's like, I don't care. I want to go anyway. And I'm assuming that he thought when he was going there that it was going to look a lot like him doing a crusade, renting out the amphitheater, bringing in Luis Palau and Billy Graham and just preaching Jesus, you know, being a big thing. That was Paul's idea. But the mind of Christ, the mind of God, put Paul in a, in a boat, shackled. He got to Rome, and because of the way he got there as a royal prisoner, and probably because Caesar Nero was trying to understand these Christians to prevent an insurrection, he's got Paul close by him so he can interrogate him and learn about him, which means that Paul got a one-way ticket to the front row of their version of the White House and had the ear of the Caesar. He would be chained 24 hours a day to the royal guards, okay? Okay. That means every four hours, the history of three or four sources said they would chain them, but every four hours they'd rotate out a guard. That means that he got to preach the gospel every four hours for two years. I did the math for you. It's 4,200 people that he probably witnessed to over that span of time if it was a different guard every time. 
people came to Christ. Brothers and sisters in Caesar's household came to Christ. He says, what does it matter? The gospel is being advanced because he's not looking at right up front. He's able to take a step back in the mind of Christ to say, there's a big picture here. There's a big picture there that I don't think he even knew because he was writing the Bible from prison. And Paul would never sit still that long. I mean, imagine, this guy won't sit still, he's shipwrecked. So God's basically, look, I'm just going to park you here. And he writes Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and 2 Corinthians. He's writing all these things that we now, 2,000 years later, because the mind of Christ said, there's a bigger thing going on here. The mind of Paul might thought, ouch, this really hurts, and I would rather not have to go to the bathroom while I'm chained to somebody. That's the mind of Darren. But the mind of Christ was, there's a bigger picture here. And whatever your circumstance, whether it's a silly one about being on an airplane or whether it's a dramatic one, in this room right now, there are people that you've got something facing you. Ask yourself, what's the mind of Christ on this? This situation with my family, this situation with my job. What is the mind of Christ? The mind of Christ being an instrument in this orchestra is followed by and I'm going to say this, and it's so cheesy, but I want you to remember it. The attitude of gratitude. He had opportunities to gripe and moan. We used to tell my artists, here's, I learned something. Whenever I'd get a call from a promoter and they'd say, well, we loved your band, but they're kind of like a bunch of rock stars. And after a while, I started digging in. And here's what they meant by rock stars. Going by catering, going, oh, did they not get the writer? Did they... This water isn't this, or I, you know, I have an uh, uh, allergy to this. Why would they even serve this food? This sense of indignation. What it really was was complaining. You are not, you cannot be grateful in complaining at the same time. So when they would say, oh, they're just acting like a bunch of rock stars, what they're saying is they're not very grateful. They don't even know how to explain that, but that's what they're feeling. So, you know, kids, when you come home and you open the fridge... Ah, mom, there's no whatever, white bread, there's all this. You're complaining because you're not being grateful that, oh, by the way, there's, there's Cheez-Its in the, I guess, I don't know, we're out of healthy people in here. Uh, there's grapes, <laughs> you know, in the fridge. But Paul, in his gratitude, he's just saying, look, whether it's false motives, whether it's whatever, at least Christ is being preached. This gratitude of what God is doing is so much bigger. This gratefulness, and you literally can read this entire letter and it is dripping with gratitude. At one point he says to the church at Philippi that look, I'm not even saying I, have, I don't have any needs right now. In prison, by the way. I would have started to go fund me. But he's in prison saying, I don't have any needs. I'm just so grateful that you've thought about me, that you've always kept me in mind. And I gotta tell you that that, is, that takes practice. You know, I could pick up the guitar right now, first service can tell you this, and I could limp through a G chord. But it's been a while. Because it takes practice. What happens up here with these guys that play or sing, it's not that they just started the day. They started a long time ago practicing that. And the idea of practicing gratitude is patently biblical. It's not Oprah. It's Jesus to be grateful. And this letter is dripping with that gratitude. And here's why this is important. Because Every day in your life, there are people around you. For the most part, it's going to be other people that can absolutely steer your attitude into the wrong direction, into being ungrateful. And sometimes they might have actually do something wrong that makes you mad that is a reasonable thing to be mad about. 
But we could still have, we still could choose gratitude in that moment. Playing the orchestra, conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul lays out these four types of people, the critics. He talks about, is that in verse 15, that it's true that some preach the gospel out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill, envy and rivalry. Critics are, aren't they the worst? Aren't they, when you put up something on Facebook that you think is going to be so normal and so easy, and then all of a sudden 78 responses later, like, what? I just wanted to know what vet I was supposed to take them to. It happened to us a few years ago, and Shannon was just trying to find a vet, and she was like, the question I think was, should we go to blue, uh, blue whatever, or rock and country, or whatever it was. 78 posts later, we had everybody saying from, like, well, you shouldn't even own a dog if you haven't already taken them to the vet. I swear I'm not making that up. To, you know, you should rub an oil on him or you should do... There was just all kinds of advice that we had. By the way, we actually did try the oil, just so you know. Um, But the critics... It's In my life, I need people that can tell me the truth. I just do. You need people in your life that can tell you the truth. But you need to be very careful with who that is and who it isn't. That those who are, have the ability to speak truth into your life are those that, you have, that have earned the right through relationship and through respect and through mutual understanding. Someone that just literally sits out and throws rocks at you, which the internet has given plenty of room for rock throwing, they have an absolute way of derailing you. But don't, you do not have to let them choose how you're going to respond to it. Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, talks about standing in front of the Gestapo this in, the, in a Nazi concentration camp. He, is sta- he literally has nothing left. He is absolutely naked, and he has no food. He has Everything he's ever owned has been stolen. His family is gone. He had nothing left, but in that moment, he said, the thing that I knew that they couldn't take from me was my choice of how I would respond to them. And in that moment, believe that he was doing intuitively what Paul was saying, which is, I can choose how I'm going to respond to these critics. I can choose how I'm going to respond to the, the competitors, those who are trying to get better than me, or those that are the conspirators, those that are kicking me while I'm down. I can choose how I'm going to respond to that. Because what does he say to all that? What does it matter? Those that are preaching gospel this way, those that are kicking me while I'm down, those that are sniping at me on the internet, what does it matter Really? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or pure, verse 18, that Christ is preached and because of this I rejoice. That he could, in that moment, be grateful that, hey, these other things that are happening, these are all people that Jesus has died and bled for and forgives. I can be grateful that something is happening here, that God is at work. I can be grateful for that. And third thing, the third instrument in this orchestra, if you will, in this band, we're conducting is really simple faith. It's trusting that God is working things out. Have you heard the scripture that without faith it's impossible to please God? How many of you thought that that means the more faith I have, the more God is pleased with me? I mean, I did for a lot of my life. So it became more about this work. If I can work and get more faith, then I can make more happy God. That's not what he's saying. He says, Without faith, it's impossible to please me. What pleases God most is when you and I become into a relationship with him. That pleases God more than anything. And it's faith. That's the only thing he required is to believe. 
And I love this. He says, but you know what? If you just have faith the size of a mustard seed, mountains will move, things will fall. So he says it takes faith. I'm going to give you that faith. Oh, and by the way, it only takes a little granule of it. And without faith, it's impossible to please me. And by pleasing him, we just come into his presence as children, as sons and daughters of him. He's pleased with us. And so faith is not about earning anything. It's just about believing that he's good. And the hardest thing to do, especially in a nation like where we are, where we have options and we have things, is when you hear that I, I can't do anything about this, that you're going to lose the house. You, the, the diagnosis isn't going to come back. That we, because we think we have options. Now in Haiti, they don't think those things. When the earthquake happened seven years ago there, nobody thought. They didn't wait for the government. It didn't even occur to them that their government would help them. We have expectations, and when those are not met, it really tends to crush us. But listen to what, we read it just briefly last week, but let's read it again in Romans 8 and 28 when he talks about, and this is ultimately what faith is right here. In all things we know, you know this passage, some of you, if you've been around the church, you know this, you've got it memorized, that God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he glorified. He says that in all things, I'm working together. It does not mean that for every bad thing, one good thing happens. It's not like I'm moving a marble from one jar to the other. It doesn't mean, even though I've, I've actually preached it this way, it doesn't mean this, I was wrong, that I didn't marry this girl that I really wanted, and that was, I was sad about that, but he gave me the wife that I did want, and it was awesome. Every bad thing means that there's a good thing. That's the way that I've read that for years. But if you've been around long enough, some of you know that that's not how it turned out. Some of you in this room, it didn't turn out that way. But that wasn't the promise. The promise wasn't for a bad thing as a good thing. The promise was that in all things, through the span of your whole life, all things work together, and he defines good. You can't take this out of the context. What do you know? If you take a con out of the text, you're left with a, no, you take text out of the context, you're left with a con. Sorry. <laughs> write that down. Um, the good is this. The good is, verse 29, being conformed into the image of his son. That the circumstance that the enemy, that the world, whatever threw at you, God will not waste it. He did promise that. But the good is defined as you being conformed into the image of Christ. He will not withhold anything from you that makes you look more like Jesus. And you never look more like Jesus than with a nail in your hand. In all things, he's working together for good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It is Faith is me believing that even if I don't understand, I don't know the reason why, it doesn't mean there isn't one. I don't know the reason why doesn't mean that he's not good. I can say this, that any God that would do what he did that became man and then dwelt among us and just that alone, right, and then died and suffered on our behalf and then rose again on the third day, any God that would do that, whatever the reason is that this happened in your life, it's not because he doesn't love you. The cross proves that. And faith is me saying for this moment in time, just like Paul saying, look, I, he actually talks about this here. He goes on to say, I'm, uh, I'm going to continue to rejoice. I, I have rejoiced. I will continue to rejoice. 
For I know that through your prayers, verse 19, and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that what's happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. Listen to this. Don't miss this, whether in life or in death. Did he pray to get out? Absolutely he did. But he said, either way, God is good. And do you think for a second, 2,000 years into heaven, that Paul is like, man, I got totally ripped off. That was so stupid. No, 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 no. He steps back because he has the mind of Christ. And the faith that he has now, which is the language of eternity, he could look forward and say, I believe this. And now he knows why. He says in uh, 2 Corinthians that one day I will fully know as I am fully known. And the last thing that he did, mind of Christ, the attitude of gratitude, He didn't forget his purpose. Purpose, everybody in here, God has a purpose. I know that looks good on a wall plaque, but it's actually true. That he has a purpose for your life. And when you forget that purpose, because look what Paul is doing here. He says to me, verse 21, to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will be fruitful labor for me, but what will I choose? Do you understand what he's talking about? He's talking about suicide. And who could blame him? If I end this now, I could go be with Jesus. But what will I choose? There's a show that's been floating around the internets called 13 Reasons. And the premise is very simple. Parents, you don't know this. Your kids do. The entire premise of the TV series is that this girl has committed suicide and so she makes these tapes or letters ahead of time and sends them to the 13 people that did something to cause her to want to kill herself and that's the entire premise of the show. 13 reasons of why she would have killed herself. And it's sad, but I'll bet in this room right now there are some of you that that's that's crossed your mind before. It would be better if I weren't here. Teenagers, look at me. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Parents, mothers, grandparents, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Paul, because what what is the lie of the enemy is it's better for me if I'm gone. The lie of the enemy is that it's better, listen, it's better for all of you if I'm gone as well. Paul says, though, 13 reasons whatever to kill yourself there is one reason not to and he says right here because for me to live is Christ and you could say a lot of things there. you could say to me to live is friends for me to live is my career for me to live is my relationship and when you say that and you believe it and those are pulled away from you you have no reason to live but Paul says it not the lie of the enemy, but the lie, the truth of God himself was, but it's better for you that I stay because in me is this purpose. God wants me here because I have a purpose to deliver this gift inside of me to you. And you teenagers, you old parents and grandparents, everybody, you still, as long as you're still breathing this side of heaven, God is not finished with you yet. A wise old missionary once told me, I asked him, you know, how do you, he told me about a country. He's like, well, Darren, you talk about these countries that you can't get into. That's not true. The trouble is getting out of them. 
He says, if you're not concerned about how you're getting out, you can get into any country. And he told me this, he said, because here's the thing, as a follower of Jesus, on this side of heaven, you are immortal until God is finished with you. And if you thwart that plan of God in your life, not only, I mean, Jesus still loves you and he's, he's forgiving of you, but the lie was that the world would be better without it. And I promise you, it's not with you out, not in this world, the world is not a better place. Because right now you have this thing that only you have that God wants to do through you, this gift in you, this song he wants to play through you. And your purpose, your purpose is what get, kept Paul alive. And if your purpose, you remember it and constantly rehearse it and remind yourself of it, it'll keep you alive as well. These four instruments, you might see more in there, but these are the instruments in the orchestra of the song of Jesus in your life, the happy song, not Pharrell, your song. And learning to conduct these things to conduct it, this, this situation might need a little more of this. This one might need more cowbell. This one might need more bass. But what we know is at the end of it, if we let the Holy Spirit conduct it with Jesus in our lives, that we'll respond to it. And look, you're going to hit some squeakers. One of the first bands I ever managed uh, as a manager before I was an agent, I won't say any names, um, I signed them without ever hearing uh, them play live. I just heard the record, and it was fantastic. And I went and saw him live for the first time, and it was, oh, dear God. Oh, my, oh, no. <laughs> what are we going to do? Our first opportunity to open for a band, they gave us 30 minutes, and I called the manager. like, what if, you, what if it was 15? Because I feel like we got 15 minutes of fury that we can deliver. But after that, it's all bets off. And, but they just needed to practice. They just needed what Malcolm Gladwell calls the 10,000-hour rule. You've done the same thing over and over again for 10,000 hours. You get to be an expert at it. Paul was an expert because he had well over his 10,000 hours of playing the song of Jesus in his life. And you're young. You're going to hit some squeakers. You're not going to get it right today. But, oh, man, we serve a God full of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and patience. And as you get older, I mean, I'm 46, I've, I've seen some stuff, some of you are in your 70s, maybe even in your 80s, and you've seen some stuff, and the older you get, the more you learn to play this instrument, this playing the gospel in your life, the easier it is to stand up. Because sometimes God does heal us, and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes you get the job, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. And God is good either way. And he ends it with this, and I'm going to set this up for next week because he ends with this passage at the, at the end of it where he talks about that it, to, for you, not even towards the end of that, I think it's 20-something, not only is it a privilege to live for him, but he talks about the privilege of suffering for him. And because of that, when he said this, because of the suffering that I did, he says two things happened. Those who don't know Christ that it was a testimony to them of the power of God. And those who did know Christ, those who are brothers and sisters, were bolstered by my testimony. So that when we play this song well, those who don't know the Lord are inspired by it and drawn into it. That what Peter would say, that to, to be ready to give an answer for when you, someone asks you about your faith, the verse right before that he's talking about being about suffering. And if you suffer well in those situations, people are going to ask you, how do you do that? How did you do that? And you, when you say it's the power of the Holy Spirit, it's the power of God, Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected inside of me, 
be ready to give them an answer when you're there. And for those that have, uh, who are brothers and sisters, when you've seen those that have come out of prison in Iran or other places, remember how bolstered you are at their faith in that? It, there's a bolstering in that. And next week, Greg and Tracy are here this morning in Jackson, but Greg, is, I'm, I'm, I'll be getting back from Haiti Saturday night, and I'm going to have, uh, I've, Greg has been suffering these past few years. And if you've known him for any length of time, you've known that this is real suffering and that he is telling a story to the unbelievers and he's bolstering the believers in it. And so I can preach about it all day long or I could just let, I could just let Greg come play the song. And so we're going to do that next week. Would you stand to your feet? I know I went long this morning. I'm sorry, but I just want this beautiful orchestra of conduits to play the song in the good and the bad. And again, in the bad stuff, it's, sometimes it's easier because you have nothing left to hold on to. But those of you where it's going really good this week, be careful. Be careful. If you want to be a part of the Conduit Connect, I don't want to forget. Meet us in the back. Just go down this hallway around the corner. I will be right there. I would love to meet you and shake your hand and share a chicken salad with you. Uh, if you're visiting and you just want to know more about it, but you just want to, don't forget the connect cards and hand those in, in uh, right as you walk out that front door um, to get those Holy Spirit anointed oil uh, coffee mugs. That were. <laughs> let's, let's play the song this week. Think about the problem that's in front of you and what is the song of Jesus for that? Because you guys, some of you are facing some real live stuff, some real live heartbreak and some real live success. So we're all facing something. What is the manner worthy of the gospel of Christ to conduct yourself. Jesus, would you give us wisdom for that question this morning? It's one of the greatest witnesses we could be. Not, so nothing wrong with us handing out tracks on a corner, Lord, but the best witness, the best gospel track we have is our own life. And in the same way, the worst witness we have is when we are not. Would you allow us this week to be like Paul? We might fall, we might not get it right, we might hit a squeaker, but we're just going to keep trying and knowing that you're so full of mercy and so full of grace. And this isn't a burden on top of us, this is actually a gift inside of us. Oh, that's an amazing thought. We thank you for that, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. It's in the nature of who you are. The, the fact that we could even pray in that name alone, Jesus, is so amazing. We pray in that name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.